Well, thank you. As you probably recognize pretty quickly, and I did a poor job being a good host, this is Kenzie Klein, and she has led us in worship. Thank you so much for being here with us. You did a great job. I'm looking forward to one more song. Yeah, give a round of applause. Give a round. Let me pray. Lord, just be with us. May you lead us. May you direct us. May you be here in the preaching of your word. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. As the Christmas season comes to be, many parents and grandparents will begin asking this question. What do you want for Christmas? I mean, as a kid, I always looked forward to my mom asking me that. Usually, that meant... Uh, I was going to ask for some baseball piece of equipment that we couldn't normally get during the year. But today I want to ask a different question. It might be on the screen, so you might know it already. Not what do you want for Christmas. What do you want from Christmas? You notice the particular word change. We normally ask, what do you want for Christmas? But I'm asking the question, what do you want from Christmas? It's not a question. This is a question I begin to ask more and more as I get older, more and more as my bank account allows me usually to buy what I want. Not completely, but not what my parents are going to get me at least. I begin to ask this question, what do I want from Christmas? And what do I mean by this? The modern understanding of Christmas promises us something that it cannot fulfill. You see this on every Christmas commercial. One of my favorite ones this year is is a family going to Home Depot, purchasing an oven, and coming home, and now Christmas is perfect because we got that new oven from the Home Depot. These Christmas commercials promise us joy, they promise us a great family. They promise us an appreciative spouse for that new $70,000 SUV that we put on credit, on our, uh, got a loan for. It promises us something more than it can give. The modern secular understanding of Christmas wants people to experience a joy and peace without any foundation for that. It wants them to have this this rest in their lives without any understanding of what true rest is. It wants them to have hope, really knowing that they are in a world that is hopeless, a world desperate for hope. What do you want from Christmas this year? Today, I want to prepare our hearts for the Christmas season by readjusting our eyes, readjusting our expectations to help us properly approach this year. Today, we're going to be looking at Psalm 33 and focusing our eyes to find our hope in the character of God this Christmas season. Psalm 33, again, the title of this, of this sermon is Finding Our Hope in the Character 
of God. Psalm 33. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with lyre. Make melody to him with harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He put the deeps in its storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. The people whom he has chosen as his heritage. The Lord looks down from, the he from heaven he sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation. And by its great might, it cannot rescue. Behold... The eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in the steadfast love that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Oh, our soul awaits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. Finding hope in the character of God. Psalm 33 can be broken down into four different sections. It begins with a response of worship in verses 1 through 3. Then moves on to we worship him, talking about the Lord due to the faithfulness of his word. Next, the next section is uh, 13 through 19. We worship him as our true deliverer. And then it finishes with this. We worship him as we wait in hope. Throughout this psalm, the psalmist is calling the reader to reflect. Reflect on the Lord's goodness, the Lord's sovereignty, the Lord's power, the Lord's love. And through reflecting on those characteristics, Walter Brueggemann in his commentary on this psalm says this, One may enact praise through song, instrument, and narrative to celebrate the kingdom, the power, and glory of Yahweh in this way, in an exuberant mode of self-abandonment. The aim of the praise of Yahweh is to focus completely on his characteristics and actions, 
for which the worshiping congregation of Israel is unreservedly grateful. He finishes up with this. Such praise is a powerful antidote to every temptation to autonomy and self-sufficiency. The reflection on God's character keeps us from the temptation we have to be our own gods. The reflection on who God is and what he has done on our behalf keeps us from saying, I am ruler, I am sovereign, I am God, I will do what I want. And so the psalmist begins, he begins with this response of worship in verses 1 through 3. We see here five commands, shout, give thanks, make melody, sing, play skillfully. Unfortunately, I can only do four of the five things, but by God's grace, we have people who are gifted to play skillfully in great ways. But with these commands, while these commands are commands, they are commands that cannot be forced. I cannot force you to worship God. I cannot force you to shout his praise. I cannot force you to give thanks to him. All these commands can only flow out of a heart that has been transformed, a heart that's in awe of God. The psalmist is setting the tone for this psalm. He's setting the tone for who, what is about to get, take place, what is about to happen. If you are righteous and upright, your only response to the evidence laid before you will be worship. Who are the upright and righteous? That's a great question. Thank you for asking it. So often when we hear these words, we think of a moralistic terms. The upright people are the people who do not do this and they do that. But when we begin to look at the Psalms, we begin to see a bigger picture. This is not false. Yeah, more uh, upright and righteous people do have a moralistic characteristic to them. But if you begin to read the rest of the Psalms, if you, the Psalm, and begin to read the rest of the Psalms, you begin to see a bigger picture. In this Psalm, you don't see someone wrestling with what to do. In this psalm, you don't see someone, even in the psalms, you don't see people wrestling with the laws of God. The upright and righteous person is the one who completely gives themselves over to the Lord. And so therefore, when they read his laws, they delight in the law of the Lord. When they read his rules, they, they find hope and peace in them. They do not find duty. Because in following his ways, they are what? They're worshiping him. When the psalmist speaks of the righteous and upright, he is referring to those who fully surrendered their lives to God. James Creech on this says this, the righteous are distinguished from the wicked mainly by their confession of helplessness and therefore they seek refuge in the Lord. Who are the righteous ones? Who are the upright ones? They are the ones who enact praise through song, instrument, and narrative. To celebrate the kingdom, the glory of Yahweh in what? An exuberant mode of self-abandonment. They call the Lord their Lord. And yes, this will change your life. 
Yes, this will change your view of morality, but a change in morality, a change in life choices does not always necessitate a change in whom you worship. I could be moralistic and worship myself pretty easily. I could be moralistic because I want to make my parents happy. I could be moralistic because I don't want to go to jail. It will never change my heart of whom I worship. So the upright ones, the righteous one, do what is only natural to them. They worship the Lord. We see instruments, we see shouting, we see this idea of they worship in a new song. This worshiping of the Lord through a new song refers to a song of thanksgiving or a song of praise. We'll actually see this theme kind of play out throughout this scripture. We see this theme play out in the New Testament. It begins in Psalm 40, verse 3. He says, he put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our Lord. This new song is the only response of the one who has seen and tasted the goodness of submitting their life to the Lord. One commentator believes that Revelation, that John looks to this Psalm 33 as a a foundational point as he writes Revelation in Revelation 5.9. Speaking on on the song, they sing, they sing a new song, speaking of those who have been redeemed by the king. And they they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood, you, you ransom people for God from every tribe and language, people and nation. Revelation 14.3. And they were singing a new song before the throne. The new song is a song of worship that God's new creation people desire to sing to their great Lord. We see Ephesians 5.19 addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. A new song. This is why Christianity is a religion of worship, not a religion of duty. Not a, not a religion that says you must follow these rules, a religion of worship. And we see this as it begins to play itself out in these first three verses of Psalm 33. Oh, you who have given yourself fully over to the Lord, who have surrendered your life to him. Sing a new song of praise. The heart that has been confronted with God, he will sing praises to him. He cannot not but do that. But why don't we worship? We understand these feelings of worship do not always exist, right? I mean, we're coming into the Christmas season. For some of you, Christmas is exciting. We get to see grandkids. We get to see kids. We get to see family. Some of you come into a Christmas season sad because we reflect on the reality that some family will not be with us this Christmas. There's pain. There's hurt. So this feeling of worship isn't really there, right? Sometimes we don't feel like worshiping because our hearts are not close to God. Why don't we worship the Lord? Sometimes, I mean, many people just don't believe in him. Maybe you're a kid. Maybe your mom and dad forced you to come here. Maybe you're here because someone tricked you. I don't know. 
Maybe you don't believe in God. How can you worship someone you don't believe? Sometimes we don't worship him because we do not believe that God knows what's best for us. Sometimes we don't worship him because we believe that God does not know what's best for me. I am king. I am ruler. I'm the one who dictates how this world will be ran. God, who do you think you are? Sometimes we don't worship God because we really don't believe God loves us. God, why would you allow this to happen to me? Why would you allow me to do this? Why would you allow this to, to take place? Sometimes we just don't believe that God is trustworthy. Why don't we worship him? We don't believe he's trustworthy. How can we trust you, God? Are you worthy of me fully surrendering to you? Therefore, I will not worship someone I cannot fully surrender my life to. We so often treat God like a bad friend from high school. I remember when I was in high school. wasn't that long ago, longer than I would like to admit, but shorter than some of you guys. When I was in high school, I had a group of friends, about four or five friends. One of them was a kid. I won't give his name. He won't listen to the sermon. It doesn't make a difference, and you won't know a difference anyways. But I had this one friend. We had this group of friends, and this one kid, whenever he was alone with one of us, he would be talking mad stuff. Sorry, let me translate to you. Um, he would be talking gossip about others, the rest of us. I remember he'd be here. He'd be talking about this friend if you were with him. He's doing that behind your back, too. He was, just, he was known for it. Like, we all knew who he was. Like, we knew he would do this, but we still wanted to be with him because he was the cool kid. He was the one who got us all the friends, other friends, the people to like us. He knew where all the good parties at. You can just kind of see where I was in high school at that point. And we just allowed him to be our friend as his character showed he was not a good friend. We can all go back to our high school days. We can go back to probably even 10, 10, 5, 10 years ago. We can probably say that friend was not a good friend. And sometimes we treat God like that bad friend. We can't trust your character. Maybe I think you have what's best for me, but do you really know? In the end, sometimes we just don't trust the character of God. So therefore, we do not fully surrender him. Therefore, we do not worship him. While the psalmist knows that we can fall prey to these false beliefs about God, the psalmist still commands us to worship the Lord. But in that command, the psalmist does not leave us pondering why. He does not leave us asking the question, is God really trustworthy? Can I really surrender? Does he really deserve my worship? The, 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 the psalmist right now is about to answer, yes, he does. And we begin in verse 4 where it says, and this is the second point, we worship him due to the faithful, faithfulness of his word. We worship him due to the faithfulness of his word, verses 4 through 12. The author of the psalm is calling us to fully buy into this idea of worship. The commands of worship have now moved to the credible evidence of why God deserves worship. The evidence is, is centered around this idea of the faithfulness of God's word. He begins by saying the Lord is upright. The word of the Lord is upright and all his work is done in faithfulness. He's telling us that whatever God says, he's going to do. Whatever God says, he will do. God's word is upright. It is right. It does not change. It does not 
um, does not it does not fail. God's word is perfect, upright. God's word is faithful. All his work is faithful. If God's word is upright, now all his works are faithful. He does not do anything that is wrong. He does not make a mistake. I mean, I look around and we see fathers here, right? Many fathers in this room. Many fathers who love their kids. I had a great dad. My dad was amazing. My dad made mistakes. My dad didn't keep his word sometimes, not because he didn't want to. He's a human being. Sometimes his word failed. Sometimes his work failed me. All you fathers, can, can, you have memories right now that are flooding back into your brain of how you failed your kids a little bit, maybe big time. God does not fail. His word does not fail us. His word is perfect. His works are perfect. Same word used here to describe the worshipers is used to describe the Lord upright and faithful. Calling the Lord your Lord will mean that you bear his same traits, but the focus of the psalmist is not for you to take notes of how to be a better person, but for you to be in awe. Why worship the Lord? Because all he says is true. Why worship the Lord is because he is faithful. One commentator comments that by meaning upright, the psalmist tries to convince us, tries to buy into this idea, tries to get us to comprehend that God never fails us. If we could believe those two truths, that God's word never fails, and that his works are perfect, how much rest could we have? Not only that, he continues to go and says he loves righteousness and justice. In verse 5, his, the earth is full of the steadfast love. We begin to see the, the picture of the character of God is being filled. And we begin to have a better illustration of who this God is. His word never fails. His works are perfect. And now he is righteous in justice, meaning he does no wrong. Everything God does is perfect. Everything God does is right. And his steadfast love fills the earth. His hesed love, a love that we cannot comprehend. I was reading and trying to understand this. And, and we try to put this hesed, this, this, this special love, this steadfast love into terms. And, and I just love how one commentator, he just says, I just can't. You don't understand this because you're not God. You have conditional love no matter how much you want. I love my wife so much. She puts up with me so much. But there's an aspect where our love is conditional. We don't want it to be. We don't mean it to be. But God's love has no conditions. He's right. He's just. He's perfect. His word never fails. There is not one ounce of the, the rest righteousness and his, his love fills the earth. Sometimes it's hard to comprehend right here. Why? Because there's just bad things that happen in this world. There's evil people. YouTube courtroom cases on YouTube, on the YouTube, on YouTube. Just YouTube it. Be careful. 
you get to hear like sentencings, and I don't know how I got to this. That's how YouTube works sometimes. You get to hear the, the evil in this world. And sometimes you hear this evil and you wonder, how can that take place? How can God allow this evil in this world? And then we kind of forget that we are a part of that evil. How do, we, how do we point fingers when we are a part of that evil too? Sometimes it's easy to judge people for what they have done wrong and forget that we have done so much wrong against God. This is how Paul, when Paul is writing Romans, this is Romans 12, 19. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. How does, how does Paul, who will, who will be in jail eventually, who will eventually be martyred for the Christian faith, how does he say, I'm going to trust God's revenge. I'm going to trust God's justice. I'm going to trust God's love. It's because Paul is reminded of where he came from, the evil in his own heart, and that Christ died for that own evil. God's judgment is in Christ's hands freeing us to trust his character. Can you trust God? Can you trust his word? Can you trust his direction? The cross demonstrates the extent of God's judgment over sin. God, the cross demonstrates the, God's love for us. The cross demonstrates that we can trust in God. The psalmist shouts with enthusiasm of a little kid trying to wake their parents up, up, wake their parents up on Christmas Day. Can you trust God? Yes, you can. Yes, you can. Can you trust the character of God? Yes. The psalmist provide, moves from providing ethical evidence to providing observational evidence. Ethical evidence, God is good, therefore you can trust him. Observational evidence, God is powerful, therefore you can trust him. Moving to verses 6 through 11, we see that the Lord made the heavens. Out of the breath of his nostrils, he made their host. God's word is faithful because God's word is always comes to be. God's word is faithful because it always comes to be. In the 1970s, a man by the name of Harold Camping began to come into mild fame through a radio show called Family radio. What, what was entitled family radio was by no means family friendly. See, what brought Mr. Camping into fame was his prediction on the world's end. As stated from the New York Times, he first widely noted doomsday was on Mar May 21st, 1988. He later published a book called 1994, a 500-page book setting a range of dates that September of 94. Despite the derision of mainstream Christian groups and scattering secular critics, Mr. Camping, have, having conceded errors in his earlier calculations, decided to try again in the late 2008. I don't know if we can keep count with how many tries this is right now, but eventually you might get it right. Not him, actually. but uh, The end, he said, would come then on May 21st, 2011. After that date passed, he corrected and said October 21st, 2011. Mr. Camping conceded that he had been wrong about the timing and had no evidence that the world would end soon. <laughs> he offered an apology for his erroneous statements, which he called sinful, and hinted that his days of apocalyptic warnings were over. 
Harrod Camping would eventually pass in December of 2013. Man's word will fail. While this story provides an almost exaggerated view on the failure of one man's word, we know that even the richest, most powerful men and women of the world have only so much power. In one way, the psalmist provides a contrast between the word of the Lord and the counsel of men. While God spoke and the universe was created, man's words are limited in power. He brings nothing, he brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. While the breath of the nostrils of God created the furthest galaxies, the counsels of the nations can only move at the will of God. Psalm thirty-three, eleven: the counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his hearts to all generations. The character of God and the sovereign power of God have brought peace to Christians since the beginning of the church the character of God and the sovereign power of God have brought peace to Christians since the beginning of the earth. After Peter and John had been released from prison, listen to their response. This is coming from Acts 4, 23 and 24. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what, chief, what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices to God and said, What? Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Going down down a little bit. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Coming out of the jail cell, they looked at God and not, did not say, God, you made a mistake. Why did we go to jail? They said, yeah, we were in jail. But God, your sovereign hand was over that. Herod does not take a step without you allowing him to. Pontius Pilate did not make this decision without you being okay about it. Sometimes it's hard to grasp around that, that God is sovereign over the just and the unjust over what's happening right in this world and what's happening wrong. It's hard to comprehend that God's hand is caring for all of that. To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Even the council of evil leaders are under subjection to the Lord. Even in their evil, God is doing something greater. This is the character of God. This is the character of your God. This is the character of the God whom loves you. This is the God. This is who God is to this power of the uh, God is now with us in this life. This is who your God is. He is sovereign. He is ruling. He is faithful. God's word is faithful because blessedness comes only from God's word. God's word is faithful because blessedness only comes from God's word. If you know me, if you had a conversation with me before, you know this word has transformed my life. Blessedness. Verse 12. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. 
Blessed is the nation. How happy is the nation, some of your translations say. How amazing is that nation who, that some of your translations may say. The word blessed is this idea of joy, peace, rest, abundant life that only comes from knowing God. When we are in a state of blessedness, it means that we are doing what we were made to do. And he says, blessed is that nation whose God is the Lord, specifically speaking about Israel here, but now speaking about us who follow the Lord. Blessedness only comes from knowing God. Blessedness is something everyone thinks, but only comes from knowing God. Ray Ortland, speaking on the Psalms, says that the Psalms show us that the essence of man is knowing God, being in relationship with God. But what made Israel great was never her morality, never her following the law, but it was her God. So far in this psalm, what we have seen is why does the Lord deserve our praise? His word is always true. His actions are always faithful. He always does what is right. He always does what is just. By his word, all creation came into being. He gathered the oceans by his strength. God spoke and it happened. Nothing else like this exists. We bring our plans to God. He never brings his plans to us. God's word demonstrates to us who God is. His great sovereign power, his amazing steadfast love. It calls us to follow him because in pledging our allegiance to him, we receive peace and rest. Now, reflecting on that character, reflecting on that love, reflecting on whom we, we hope in, how does that not lead us to worship? How do we not cry out to God, I am yours? How do we not give God our full allegiance? We are led to worship. We worship him due to the faithfulness of his word. Now we worship him as our true deliverer. We worship him as our true deliverer. Here in verses 13 through 19, we see these two again being, con these two ideas being contrasted. The Lord looks down from heaven. He knows all things. He sees all things. He understands what's happening. Nothing is hidden from his sight. And then we have the kings who are trying to save themselves. We have the, we have the Lord who knows all. And we have the people who are trying to live their lives in a way, making peace for their own way, making their own peace. God knows the hearts of man. It is clear to him. We, also, we see this so often in, in um, the, the people of Israel. Israel, we, 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 watch their, we watch them, especially when we have like kids' stories, where Israel ran after the other nations. They wanted to be like the other people. Why? Because in this time, the king with the biggest army, what? It was the king who won the battle. He's the king who, won the, who ran the show. And so this psalmist is looking at a heart issue that the Israelites would have struggled with and said, a strong army will never be your savior. A strong king will never win for you the battle that you ultimately need to win. 
The psalmist is speaking to their hearts. The psalmist is speaking after their false saviors. And let's be honest, we run after so many false saviors. We run after so many false saviors. Tim Keller in his book, one of his books, he, he writes about this, these three, these four identities that we can run after. False saviors we can run after. Money, power, sex, identity. False saviors that we in this modern age are prone to run after. Money, money provides us peace, a sense of peace. Power provides us a sense of worth. The more power we have, the more worth we have. Sex provides us with a sense of love. Identity provides us with a sense of meaning to our lives. We run after these false saviors, hoping that they would bring us some joy, some, some worth, some life. I think one of the clearest pictures that we see about this in the Bible comes from John 4. John 4, we have the woman at the well. And this woman at the well is going out there. Jesus meets her. She's from Samaria. She's going out in the middle of the day because she is a woman of unique circumstances. And Jesus meets her at the well. And Jesus looks at her and says this, If you knew the gift of God and who it is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Jesus looks at this woman. He tells her what she's doing, how many men she has been with. And says, I know that these false saviors you're running after, this safety you're finding in the men, this love you're finding, the food that you probably get from them, the care, the false care they're giving you, this worth that you feel because you're with these guys, your identity in this, they're false saviors that will never bring you hope. Now come to me and I will give you living water. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is false hope of sal for salvation. How many of us are running after these false saviors? How many of us are trying to find hope in other things besides this God? What, are you gonna, what do you want from Christmas this year? What do you want from Christmas? Are you trying to run after these false hopes to find peace and joy in this season. I think we can sometimes think of Paul as a superhero. I think we can think of Paul as a superhero. This is figure that just did amazing things. I really don't believe, I mean, I know for a fact he didn't, but I really don't believe Paul had any superpowers. I think Paul just believed this. Come to me, all you who, are labor, who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take, upon, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Paul knew that he had been delivered from his false hope of Pharise Phariseeism to save him. He had been confronted with the living Christ, and now all he could do was submit his life to him, submit his life to the goodness of God, to the character of this Christ who loved himself to die on the cross for him. This is where the cross of Jesus Christ demonstrates so much for us. I remember when I was in San Diego, I used to surf a lot. I love. I got into surfing. It was so much fun. Uh, as I was beginning to learn about surfing, I would buy a surfboard. My wife let me buy way too many surfboards. I bought them used. They're at cheaper prices, but I lost a lot of money. To, whatever. But 
as I was learning to surf and I was buying surfboards, I began to learn that there was something in a surfboard called a stringer. Okay, a stringer. So I bought this one surfboard. It's called a foam board. They're a little bit lighter. They're easier to use, and they, they're supposedly easier to get up. But this one surfboard I bought from this guy, it bent. I bought it. We have something called Offer Up in the States, something similar to Kijiji, but I bought it from him. And I asked him, is it supposed to bend? He goes, yeah, you're fine. I wasn't. And, and so I go, and I, and I tried to use the surfboard, and it just didn't work. It just didn't work. Well, I ended up finding out that this was a cheaply made surfboard and that this surfboard had no stringer in it. What a stringer is, it's a piece of wood that travels down the middle of the board to keep it from bending. So within a board is this foam, and in this foam is this long piece of really hard wood that keeps the board from flexing. And therefore, you can jump on a board of 240-pound man can jump on a board, and it does not collapse. That was also other things, reason why it doesn't collapse. But the stringer is a main aspect of it. I believe the cross of Jesus Christ is the stringer that keeps us our hope for Christ, uh, hope in God going. So the stringer keeps us from collapsing. I mean, the cross keeps us from collapsing like the stringer keeps the board from collapsing. The cross demonstrates the love of God for us, right? The cross demonstrates the justice of God over evil, right? The cross of Christ demonstrates that we can have hope in this God to provide for us greater than we can ever expect. Two verses that have, and I, I, I say these probably every sermon, and I know if you're in my youth group, you probably, I say these so often because these two verses have been so instrumental, instrumental in my life. Romans 5, 8, But God shows his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And then Romans eight thirty two, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If he did not, not, if he did not give... I hate the way the ESV has translated this. It's so hard to say. He gave his son for you. Will he not give everything else to you? Can you trust him? Can you trust him with cancer? Can you trust him when evil has happened to you? That his justice will prevail? Can you trust him this Christmas when you feel lonely? Can you trust him when you lose your job? Can you trust in his character that he's actually caring for you? It's so hard. It's so hard to rest in the faithfulness of God when things are not going your way. We want to easily run after those false saviors, coping mechanisms, sometimes another word for them, to provide us hope and peace. Can you trust the character of God that he's for you? He who did not give up his own son for you, he who's willing to give up his own son for you, will he not give graciously give you all things? Finish up this with his last three verses, verses 20 through 22. We worship him as we wait in hope. We worship him as we wait in hope. Waiting on the Lord is hard. We've all been there. Waiting on the Lord is hard. The psalmist finishes up with this beautiful, this beautiful reflection on God's awesome character by being honest. The author has moved from commands to evidence now to personal reflection. The, the author who has stood on the outside has now brought himself in. He's saying, we are waiting in hope. We are waiting for the Lord. We 
are waiting that we might see this fullness of hope come through God. God, we're waiting on your steadfast love. We will wait. I remember in a difficult season for uh, Emily and I, I just remember we, we were talking, and at the end of the conversation, we just sat, it was dark in our room, and we began to listen to the song by Shane and Shane. And it was titled, I Will Wait For You. It had been stressful. We felt like we were at the ends of ourselves. God, what are you doing with our lives? We just don't know. We can't, we can't even see beyond a week from now. God, what is happening? We just sat in the dark and says this. Now he has come to make a way, and God himself has paid the price, that all who trust in him today find healing in his sacrifice, that all who trust in him today find healing in his sacrifice. And this is the, this is the chorus. I will wait for you. I will wait for you. Through the storm and through the night, I will wait for you, surely wait for you, for your love is my delight. Again, I ask you, what do you want from Christmas this year? I want to be overwhelmed. I want you to be overwhelmed. Not by the stress of the season, but by the gracious coming of God's Son to become man so that he might take away the sins of the world. I want you to become overwhelmed by the complete reliance on God that we can have as we wait on him. Matthew 1, 21. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sin. This Christmas, let's reflect on who God is and why when Jesus came, that is the greatest gift we can possibly have. And therefore, we can trust in the character of our God. Let me pray. Father, we just thank you for who you are. We thank you that you are king, that you are Lord. We thank you that we can trust you, God. In a crazy world of, of pain and sorrows, we can trust that you are for us and that you are with us. That you are, that you are keeping all things together. Even when we see the evil in this world, evil in our lives, we can trust you. Pray this in your